Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is medical device sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of water-washed air in times of Saharan dust clouds. I never forgot that water-washed air line from a rainbow vacuum cleaner salesman who came over to my house, dumped three metric tons of dirt on my carpet, and then proceeded to clean it all up with that water-washed air machine, the rainbow vacuum cleaner. Uh, It was all going great until I finally got the price tag on that thing. Woo! Katie, bar the door, that thing was expensive, but uh, what a cool gadget. I love gadgets. I love technology, and that is one reason I'm super pumped about our interview today. We all get to sit and listen to Dr. Ira Kirschenbaum, LinkedIn Luminary, talk about the contributions he's made to our space over the years, and a lot of them have to do with the internet and the web space and some things that he's doing right now. So that is really something to look forward to. So in the meantime, let's refer back to our favorite word, humility, and how it applies to the three A's, something we've heard from surgeons over the years, availability, ability, and affability. We talked about availability last week. And affability, we're going to do that shortly. I like an excuse just to put it off so I can keep using the word affability every week. It's a cool word, and I don't think I would use that word otherwise except for the show. So today we're going to do a little bit on ability and maybe do that over the next few segments. This is a huge word, and we've talked about the tripod of medical device sales. I guess it should be a tri-flange, right, if it's orthopedics, and that would be the technical, the relational, and the selling aspect of this job. So those three things represent abilities, right, that you need to have to do this job and to do it well. And a component of probably the selling aspect is persistence. And I'm going to jump on that word just a little bit because of something Dr. Kirschenbaum said in the interview. And I thought we would honor that and open it up a little bit. So ability, the possession of the means or skill to do something. And there's a lot of skills that you need to have to do this job. And a lot of them are skills we just have to develop and work on. We're not just born with it. Uh, Nobody's born with humility. Nobody's born with the technical knowledge to do this job. These are all things we have to work on. And certainly persistence is something that we have to work on uh, and have a skill in being persistent having a proficiency in persistence. So what is persistence? Firm or obstinate continuance in a course of action in spite of difficulty or opposition. Now, people that know me know I love Seinfeld. So let's jump on to a Seinfeld clip to open up this point just a little bit further. I've been waiting out their marriage for three years. Yeah, me too. Well, I've been waiting out two or three marriages, but this is the one I really have my eye on. So waiting out a marriage, I've never heard that in context of medical device sales, but isn't that absolutely true that your customers are married to a rep or a company or a product or any number of things, and there you are on the outside looking it in, and in the real world, you would never want to date somebody or show an attraction to them when they are married, right? But in this job, it's encouraged. It's what you get paid to do. So how do you do that? How do you wait out a marriage? Josh Turner had a great country song. He said, I may not know what love is, but I know what it ain't. And I'll tell you what waiting out a marriage isn't. It's insulting their spouse, thinking that that's going to make them think you to be more attractive. Now, I have seen reps do that over the years. There's one in particular that stands out. Uh, And many a surgeon has told me that uh, this gentleman would come into their office and just run The company they were using down, run the distributor down, run the rep down. It was always just calling their spouse ugly, so to speak, and it never works out. I worked with a surgeon one time who said something that uh, I I didn't like it as a father of daughters. You know, I understand it, but I didn't like it. He said, a man is only as faithful as his options. And I thought, you know what? Note to self, your son is not dating my daughter with that mindset. But uh, 
in some ways in medical device sales, that is true. That is true. Is that your customer that is married to a product in certain circumstances uh, is only going to be as faithful to that product as his or her options. No one knows that particular aspect better than me. I was dating a girl in college who was a cheerleader, and I thought I was the man. I was dating a cheerleader for our college until that day that she said, I'm really not going to date you anymore. And I'm like, well, why? I'm like, what did I do? She goes, well, there's this guy, and he's got a Supra, a brand-new Toyota Supra, and an American Express gold card. She actually told me that that he just had some finer accoutrements than me, and that's why she was moving on. And, of course, I was young and stupid. I didn't really grasp just how shallow that was or really get my arms around that Mr. Supra had his own surprise when she met Mr. Mercedes and Mr. Blackcard. Uh, he was going to be in for a little shocker as well. So uh, I got the business end of that, of being only as faithful as your options. So what waiting out of marriage isn't is insulting their partner and hoping that somehow you become the man or the woman of their dreams as a result. It doesn't work that way. What it does involve is just slow and steady. Make sure they know your name. Make sure they know what you have. But then back off. Back off. Show some space. Show some respect, especially if what they have is a long-term relationship that you know is pretty solid. I mean, those are the kind of marriages that you may not want to spend a lot of time on because they're lifetime marriages. I know we've got some birds in our backyard, and one of them in particular I was reading that they are mates for life, and we know who those surgeons are. They've been using the same thing since their fellowship forever. Are they the ones that you want to just beat your head up against the wall? Maybe not, but that doesn't mean that they don't need to know your name and need to know what you have in your bag and to stay in contact with them. True example, I called on a surgeon for years who was happily married to another company and got nowhere, couldn't get into the OR, couldn't get in to see him. And then one day I walked in their office, dropping off yet another business card with a note on it saying, hi, my name is, you know, can we do this or that? Can I come by and you know, well, this day was different. Uh, as soon as I walked in, they said, he wants to see you. And I just went, oh my gosh, what's going on? So then he sat me down. He said, look, I've been having troubles with company X and rep Y. And can you bring your inventory in and, uh, and let me see what I want to start using? So I pulled a ring out of my pocket, gave it to him and said, I do. I didn't kiss the bride, but we did marry that day, and we became uh, partners until he retired. I really enjoyed his company, and I just had to wait out the marriage and be available. We talked about that last week. He knew my name, and he knew that I was interested in dating him, uh, but I wasn't going to go in there and, and start calling out his company or his product as being inferior or... You know, we, we say in orthopedics a lot of times that's like calling somebody's sister ugly. That's where that comment comes from. You just don't do that. So we wait out a marriage with respect that they're very thoughtful about what they do and the reasons why they do what they do. Um, and we just uh, hold that in high regard and don't belittle it, right? So what do you do if we turn the tables and you're married to a surgeon and you are the apple of their eye, what do you do there? Well, you need to show that same level of persistence in tending to that relationship, correct? So there's a little bit of an offense to this job, and there's a little bit of a defense is that you're always expected to go after new business, but at the same time, you need to defend what you have. And it's just like a marriage, again, to use this uh, metaphor today, uh, marriages are like a plant, and if you just put it in the corner of the room and just assume it's always going to be there and it doesn't need any water, it doesn't need any sunlight, well, then you're going to wake up one day and find out you have a dead plant. And I understand that. I have trouble with silk plants, for that matter. But uh, we all know that plants need sunlight, they need attention, they need fertilization, they need care. Marriages are the same way. 
And the moment you take it for granted and think that that person's always going to be there and now you can lower your defenses and settle and uh, uh, let yourself go, so to speak, and uh, don't really communicate your affection for them and certain things that you do, well, then trouble's right around the corner. And I think that same mindset translates to medical device in terms of the customers that are your significant other. Do you take time out to let them know that they are important to you? Do you bring them things of value? And we're not talking about Avamed, not friendly things like pens and paper and, and all expense paid trips and all that stuff. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I mean, what about information, things that can help them in their practice, help them with the ASC, help them with the implant they're using now, connections with other surgeons that might bring value to them. There's a whole host of things that you can do to bring value to that relationship, just as you would in a marriage. You bring your spouse things of value. You communicate your feelings, right? And I'm not talking about mushy stuff, but, you know, have you ever told your customer that you really appreciate the fact that they do business with you? And, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that uh, are vying for their attention, and you just wanted to say thank you for it. People appreciate just being appreciated and that you acknowledge it and you're not taking it for granted. There's a whole nother skill set involved in maintaining that relationship and maintaining that marriage and making sure it's a healthy one that's going to stand the test of time. I really enjoyed hearing from Dr. Ira Kirschenbaum. This guy is a LinkedIn legend to me, has a lot of good content, and I remember so much of what he's done uh, on the web space, and I just didn't know that he was the one behind it all working the levers. So what an opportunity to hear from just a real thought leader in that space, and I know that we are all going to get a lot out of this. So welcome to the show, Dr. Ira Kirschenbaum. Thank you for having me. Dr. Kirschenbaum, there are a few surgeons that I truly enjoy following on LinkedIn, and you are one of them. Um, this morning, you pulled the pin on the, the repless grenade, and I definitely want to circle back and talk about that. But first, I just want to cover, you know, what got you here as chairman of orthopedics at Bronx Care Health Systems? You know, what got you into medicine? Uh, let's, let's go back to the early years. Tell me, uh, tell me what yeah. got you on this path. Well, um, yeah, I went to medical school at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, and um, from there, I wanted to go into orthopedics. And a lesson for everybody is be persistent because the first year is very competitive to get into uh, orthopedics, okay? And um, the reality is that I didn't get in my first year. One of the reasons was I hated medical school. Uh, and I left medical school after the first year to become a gym teacher. And then I decided to go back to medical school. So I think I was a little bit behind the eight ball and was not, uh, you know, sure which direction until I really did my first rotation, which actually was an OBGYN, but it was in the OR and that clicked and the OR clicked. So I decided that and, and I had an interest in function, musculoskeletal. Uh, I was probably one of the few people who did not have an interest in sports. And when people hear my lectures, they often hear me say what I do like to say. I, I do give sports the minimal amount of attention it deserves, um, uh, sports medicine. Um, but uh, I eventually uh, did I did research that year. And by, by sort of accidentally... Um, I applied for a OREF, Orthopedic Research Education Foundation grant, to buy a new product. This is 1983 now. I already got into orthopedics, but I had a year of research I had to do. And the new product was a personal computer. Wow. And it was made by IBM, and I had an IBM XT, which had two floppy drives and a 10-megabyte hard drive. And we thought in our lifetime, we'd never fill up that hard drive. <laughs> we spent the year doing bench research, playing ma uh, the precursor to Madden football all day, and learning how to program databases and a whole bunch of things. And that was my introduction. Had I not 
had I gotten into orthopedics my first time, I would not have had that first year of uh, research and would not have applied for the grant, would not have gotten into computers, which probably have defined my career. So accidentally, with persistence, you get to the finish line sometimes, which is which was quite interesting. So um, from that, I got very into uh, multimedia, uh, which was the rage at the time. Um, and actually, my very first two projects um, in, um, in IT was one was a uh, multimedia product, which became Orthopedic Grand Rounds for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. So myself and a partner of mine, Stephen Taylor, we programmed the original multimedia program, which became a CD series called Orthopedic Grand Rounds for the Academy, um, which was uh, very cool. And the second one was we came up with an idea that there should be an online service. Now, the only online service at the time was called Prodigy, for those who remember that. It was a graphical interface. So for about two years, I owned the rights for Prodigy Medicine. And if anyone wants to see the original booklet and the original site, it looks suspiciously from, this is 1985, suspiciously like websites today with all kinds of offerings and stuff. But uh, it turns out that we had some interest, some investors, but then everyone pulled the plug. The funniest story of that was I had, I went to the American College of Physicians, which I believe represents interns, right? Right. And went to the American College of Physicians and had a meeting with their president and their uh, vice president. And they said, uh, eh, it's really not for us. We're not sure where this is going. Our next visit was to the board of counselors of the AMA. And presiding over that was George Lundberg, who is the president of the AMA. And George and his team said, nobody will ever want to communicate on this medium. And I remember that like yesterday. And Steve, this is the internet, right? Right. No one will ever communicate. I'll fast forward. When I was already at Medscape for about two or three years, George Lundberg came to become the medical director of Medscape. And he got me in a corner. He says, I remember when you came and you said that and what, what we said back at you. And I can't believe we missed the mark. And it was so interesting to come full circle that way, you know? Um, from um, that year of research, I did an orthopedic residency at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Montessori Medical Center uh, in, the, in the Bronx, which is a very active clinical me uh, residency. From that, I did an adult reconstructive surgery fellowship at the Rothman Institute. And I remember speaking, uh, I remember every moment with Dick Roth. He was such a mentor in so many ways. I learned, I learned how to be an orthopedic surgeon, how to be a surgeon from Dick Rothman. I was there when Dick Rothman, Robert Booth, and Bill Hozak were my attendings with only two fellows. And it was a remarkable experience. Bob Booth, remarkable teacher, remarkable surgeon. Learned how to do knee replacement from him. Learned how to do revision surgery from Bill Hozak. It was a remarkable year. What's fascinating was that I turned down a fellowship in England at Oxford called the um, Duffy Fellowship. Uh, no, the Girdlestone Fellowship with Robert Duffy and a uh, fellowship at Harvard to go to Rothman because I sensed that that's where I would become a surgeon. And it was just a remarkable experience. Um, and I still remember our rep there from Biomet, Marty. Um, everybody was such a family down there. From there, I uh, took a job briefly in New York in a private practice. And it was my first lesson of how groups don't often get along. 
Uh, the group didn't get along with each other, so I moved on. I took a temporary job, I thought, I thought, in at Kaiser Permanente, uh, which was opening up in New York region. And they opened up in Northeast for about 15 years, I think, 10 to 15 years. And I took the job there. It uh, was a great experience. Learned a lot about the workings of HMOs, of staff model HMOs. I learned a lot about the workings of best practices, how to improve them. Um, while I was there, I became the director of resource management for orthopedic uh, surgery in the Northeast Corridor. And I had the rare distinction of winning the VOS Award for Quality, which is given out internally every year to the best Kaiser program. Um, I think it was the first time in the history of program that the VOS Award was, was not given to cancer uh, children of cardiac disease and the first orthopedic winner at the time. And our winning um, program, program, was that we decreased length of stay. And it was an article we presented at the AAOS. And length of stay at that time was about 12 days nationally or all around. And we brought it down to four and with a comprehensive integrated program. And um, we won this national award, which was really kind of odd. I then took the Kaiser contract, rolled it into a big multi-specialty group, and um, we kept doing the UFPS for Kaiser, but eventually I became the managing partner of that large group. Um, by the end of, uh, in about five years, um, I had the opportunity to become an associate with another mentor of mine, uh, Chit Ronawat, who uh, was also an amazing giant in orthopedics. Um, I was in my own private practice, but I was able to share office space with Dr. Ranawat and learned a tremendous amount. So, you know, the bookends of my mentorship in orthopedics are Dick Rothman on one side and Chip Ranawat on the other. I was able to uh, maintain that uh, professional relationship for about four years. And then I opened up a solo practice for seven years. And that was unique. I did that in the year 2000. And I opened up a solo practice. Uh, I saw two people my first day and four operations my first month. Seven years later, when I got out uh, to become the chairman at Bronx Care Health System, I ended up doing 480 operations, 50% of them out of network. And it's a story of learning that if you uh, don't do what you're supposed to do, you don't eat. Because when you're in solo practice, I have, uh, that's what happens. And I also uh, had a partner towards the end, but uh, eventually I got the offer to become the chairman at Bronx Care Health System, which is in the South Bronx. We are in the poorest congressional district in the United States. Everyone in where I was in White Plains and in Manhattan thought I was a lunatic for going. Um, they never had an orthopedic department there, only an orthopedic division. And we grew it from about 3,500 clinic visits and 200 operations to now 50,000 clinic visits and about 2,500 operations a year, major a year. Bronx, Bronx Care is wow. kind of like Switzerland in New York. Why are we Switzerland? Why are we neutral? Well, when 22% of your patients have hepatitis and HIV, and 90% are below the poverty line, although 95% are insured, and we are so dedicated to this population, we're really not in competition with special surgery or NYU, are we, for those patients? You know, it's not like they're jumping up and saying, We want your patient. So, Everyone seems to get along with us. We're not competing with anybody. The competition is treating the community. And that's that's kind of my, my orthopedic story. I started with one hire, and we now have 14 surgeons after 12 years. Wow. What a journey. I, I As you were telling me about your, your web experience, 
uh, you had mentioned to me earlier about a website that you did called Bone Home. And the more <laughs> I thought about it, I remember that site. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember that yeah. site. Tell me uh, how that how that popped out. So I had an idea in like 1993, 94 that I didn't want the old prodigy idea to die. So I called up a web developer and he, he this group laid out some uh, rudimentary website. So I got a book on HTML, hypertext markup language, okay, which was a language it still is for writing a lot of the internet. I read the book and I taught myself HTML programming. So I actually wrote the website for Bone Home myself in HTML, okay? And it had, at one point in time, 94 to 98, uh, or sorry, 94 to 97, 98, had... Um, a million page views a month internationally. And at the time, a group of us, um, Randy Sechrist, uh, Miles Clow, Gene Sherry, these guys from Canada and Australia and Montana, we formed a group called um, the, um, the Geek Club. And we had meetings at the Academy uh, of, the, of the Internet Geek Squad. Uh, and Bone Home was a very popular kind of site. It, it had, for example, it had over a thousand images orthopedically you could download for free. Okay? Bones, joints, fractures. Plus, it had well, probably 50 or 60 PowerPoint presentations that me and my former resident buddies did. That if you were stuck and you had to give a talk on hip fractures, you could download one of these and your, your attendings would be no better for it, right? You know, pretty cool. Right. We had, um, we had, I even had a, this is interesting, this is in 1994, we had an, an a interactive Excel spreadsheet that allowed you to calculate a case rate, which is now called a bundle, but back then it was called a case rate for total hip and total knee replacement. You, it had everything to do to calculate a bundle in 1994. This was just a crazy site. And um, what happened was I, ha I got a phone call from a new company, a startup company. The startup company at the time, and it's still called this, it's called Medscape. Medscape called me up and said, we watched this site. We're very interested in your content. So I had a meeting. And they offered me, I'll just tell this story straight up, they offered me $25,000 a year for my content, okay? And my lawyer turned to them and said, you don't really want his content, do you? And they said, what do you mean? He said, you want him. You want him to be part of your team, right? So I walked out not with $25,000, but with hundreds of thousands of stock options and, a, and a, a yearly stipend and became the founding executive director of Medscape Orthopedics because they had no orthopedics. So we rolled Bone Home to become Medscape Orthopedics. And I actually still am the medical director of Medscape Orthopedics, although I don't do as much for them now. But um, then in that was in 1994, and then in 97, we took a public uh, through a company called DLJ and a few others. And um, it was an exciting experience for an orthopedic surgeon who gets to who gets to invest 3,500 in a website, teach yourself HTML, and come out like that. You know, it was crazy, Kevin. That is crazy. I I was going to ask you, I had it written down on a piece of paper, you know, were you the code jockey in all this? Because uh, there's only a few surgeons I've met in my life that actually do all these different things uh, around their craft. And that's just amazing that you ended up writing the uh, the script yourself. Yeah, it was, it was, I still do some HTML for, for, for the new journal, but I do want to tell you one last story about, about, um, Medscape. So Medscape eventually was bought out by WebMD, the content of it. So Medscape is owned by WebMD, all right? 
And then I get a phone call in 2003. Now, remember, I've been, it was out of Netscape. I divested my stock uh, 97, 98, okay? So I was out. I was not part of it anymore. I was retired from, not retired from, but I was out of it. You know what I mean? I was focusing on my practice. And I get a call from WebMD itself. And they said, we'd like you to, um, we, you, your name was recommended by one of the sponsors to uh, write a blog for us. Um, you know, have you ever, uh, on WebMD Medscape, have you ever heard of us? And I said, who, who is this? Is this a prank call? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, what, what do you mean? I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to this link and look at that and see who is still the editor of Medscape Orthopedic. You go, oh, I guess you have heard of us. I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I am so honored uh, to help help you guys out as a contributing editor for your Journal of Orthopedic Experience and oh. Innovation. And it seems to be getting more traction every day. Um, where did the idea uh, for this come from? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. First of all, I want to thank you for joining. And um, we have a very, very uh, solid editorial board from both industry and academics and rank and file, which I don't think has really been done before. But the idea came, believe it or not, about 10 years ago. I was sitting around and everyone was the latest craze, not the latest craze, the A craze was, you know, clinical use guidelines and it was early super evidence-based medicine. And I said, you know what? I get it. I really get it. Evidence-based medicine is really important. But I know that if I, there's no evidence to prove that if I drive my car 90 miles an hour through a school zone, that I'll hit somebody. There's no evidence. No one's done that study. So we must know something from experience. So I mocked up an early journal called the Journal of Experience with the hope that we would interview some of the titans, like what you're doing in, uh, with the Whiteside and the Aaron Hoffman. Those guys were heroes of mine when I was uh, training. You know? Uh, I, it's just, I'm going to go off on a tangent for a second. I just totally enjoyed your discussion with Leo Whiteside. When I was a fellow, we had a fellows meeting and Leo Whiteside came and I had a chance to go to dinner with Rothman, Leo Whiteside, and Chit Ranawad. And I have to tell you, those guys sharing stories of their residency days were just priceless. And we're not getting that now. People are not rubbing elbows. So I thought we'd have a little bit of touch to people's experience and what they were doing. Then fast forward, it was too it was too much work to build a website at the time. You know what I mean? I said, you know, I'd have to build a complex website. There's a lot of programming. And then about a year ago, I stumbled upon a platform called Scholastica HQ, which is a publishing platform. So essentially, it gives you all the tools to make your own journal. You still have to work at it. Don't get me wrong. You know, just like Excel, I always like to say, I have Microsoft Word. Stephen King, their writer, has Microsoft Word. How come I can't write books like him? All right? You know, <laughs> we both own the same program. What's the difference? You know, well, you have to populate it. So Scholastica is a backbone platform that you have to populate and learn how to optimize. But it certainly saved me a lot of time in managing peer review, editing, and posting and typesetting. So once I saw that, I said, let me dust off the jacket of the Journal of Experience. And I was more intrigued with experience and innovation, especially with all the interactions on LinkedIn. So I said, we really, and I wrote a business plan, an internal business plan for this, not, not a financial business plan, but more of a project plan. And I said, you know, this would hopefully be a mouthpiece for people who did a significant 
amount of work and have experience in using a product or using a technique, we'd like to hear about that experience. You know, when I hear about a surgeon who does 10 cases and out of the operating room by four o'clock, to me, that's a story that needs to be shared. Because if you're in a hospital that's getting three joints and you're out by seven o'clock, how come you're not reading that guy's story, right? Right. There's value in that experience. So also, there wasn't a big mouthpiece for innovation. By the time we see innovation in action, it's six or seven years later in a journal of X and a journal of Y. Why can't we get into the mind of the innovator and say, how did you come up with this? Write us an article on it. How, why did you solve this? And why are you going to do this? So the interesting thing is, what is the journal? It is what it is. You know, it's, it's articles that talk about various levels of experience, various types of things interested in orthopedics, all right? Interested to orthopedic surgeons. And we're probably the only one that will take direct submissions from industry as well. They will get peer-reviewed equally. But our, as long as people know where it's coming from, this is a journal that is interested in sharing timely, active, clinical, economic, and innovative experience in orthopedics. And we're also very attached to LinkedIn, which is our mouthpiece, because you know between all the editors, there's probably 60,000 connections. And every time we post something on LinkedIn, we get a push on the, on the journal. And I know people are reading. I have the stats. They're reading articles. They're downloading articles. And I'm actually, honestly, I'm, I'm really surprised that it's sort of picked up a lot of momentum in the last few months. It's, it's exciting to watch just the whole concept of crowd sharing uh, information in our space and uh, kind of lowering the barriers to entry to publishing and saying, a, a J, say, a JOA or a JBJS uh, type. Yeah. A type uh, scenario, uh, just just making it easier for people to share what's working, what's not working. I'm really excited about it. Tell me, what's the address for people that want to check it out? All right. The simplest is journaloei.com. Journal Orthopedic Experience Innovation, journaloei.com. And that'll take you to a web page. That when you click on it, you have a number of things to do on that web page, which to learn more about the journal. And but there's a click, on, there's a sorry, there's a uh, link on that that takes you right to the academic journal. Uh, there's a little business we do on that site because we decide to become completely open access. Okay, there's no subscription; it's completely open access. And for people who don't know what open access is, when a journal has a part of it open access the way since you're not since it's not a subscription part of the journal the journal charges what's called an apc called an article processing cost okay or article processing charge okay now that you every journal i know now has the regular journal and an open access one right mm-hmm. um you don't have access to the full article unless it's open access. So if you're not an open access article, you got to be a subscriber. But there's, there's another disruptive thing we did at the journal OEI, and that was this. If I, When I looked at clinical orthopedics and related research, which is a journal I respect without question, their article processing charge for full open access was $4,700. So if you wrote an article and put it and decided you wanted it to become open access or they accepted it in the open access, you as the author have to pay a charge of $4,700, okay? Uh, I think Journal of Orthoplasty is a little over 2000 and it ranges in that thousands of dollars. So I decided we're going to be a little different. The article processing charge for Journal OI, OEI is $300. That's it. Not $4,700. We want no barriers to get through. That $300 covers our base costs 
And that's what we're interested in, you know? And um, that that alone is disruptive. Plus, in the first year of the journal, I'm not charging anybody article processing charges just to get the crowdsourcing going. We also um, do some other interesting things. Reviewers actually get an honorarium for doing reviews. I don't think any other journals do that. We give an honoraria to reviewers. Um, And we encourage very eclectic different articles. Some of them are articles, some of them are blog posts, but we try to keep it lively. Let's uh, talk for just a second about your own personal journal of orthopedic experience. I read that uh, that you would have bilateral knee replacements utilizing the Swift Path method. So, number one, I wanted to ask you how you're doing, and number two, uh, ask you about Swift Path. Tell me about that. Yeah, sure. Thank you for asking. I'm doing very well. I I uh, uh, I my right knee's at a hundred percent. My left knee's about ninety. There's a little soreness in my left. Um, I got done. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll combine two both questions. One is um, my knee replacements bilateral, not at the same time. They were a year apart, and the other swift path. I got operated on using the Swift Path episode of care management, uh, care program by the founder of that, who is an old residency buddy of mine, Craig McAllister, who is uh, located in the Seattle, Washington area, Kirkland and the Everett Clinic. He's now the uh, head of joint replacement for the Everett Clinic. I flew all the way out to Seattle from New York City to have my knee replacements done. Okay. So I was I was at a lecture recently, not recently, about a year ago. No one's no one's had a lecture recently, uh, about a year ago. And someone said, "Why did you go to Seattle to get it done?" And there were a lot of my colleagues and friends in New York in the audience. And I said, "Well, you know why? It's impossible to find a good joint replacement surgeon in New York City." <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> you should have seen the faces from you know. From, from all the different academic centers. And I was friends with, with almost all of them. Um, they all got the joke. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of fun. But, but Craig, I, 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 just, I, I just went out there to get it done. So Craig McAllister was the brainchild of Swift Path, which was an episode of care management with uh, ERAS, an early recovery system, focused almost entirely on same-day surgery, ambulatory surgery, okay? Ambulatory joint replacement surgery. Now, when uh, we started this, Craig came up to me and said, listen, I have this idea. I've been doing this for a while. I pub- I uh, published a poster session at AUKUS, uh, Hip and Knee Society, on our results uh, equaling or bettering um conventional longer term stay um and um i want to put this in a codic- i want to codify this in a company that does this and so we uh, he said that i don't have any platform for it so i went back to my programming <laughs> and i programmed the platform for swiftback okay which when it got taken over by professional programs once we got funded those guys said you know, for an orthopedic surgeon, you're a good programmer. You know, yeah, that's and for a good programmer, you're probably a good orthopedic surgeon. But you know, stay out of the business. But at least it got us going. Um, we were um, invested in by uh, a large company called SCA, which eventually bought out by Optum, um, and we have quite a few clients around the country. Um, where we're morphing into uh, reaching patients directly now. Um, but people could see my journey of my knee replacement through the Swift Path method on the website, myneeyourknee.com. It's a WordPress blog. And a lot I send a lot of my patients to it because it chronicles the first two weeks of my own journey with videos, me taking off my dressing, um, my perception of my pain, 
in the first and the second knee replacement, over a six-week period, I took three five-milligram oxycodone pills for each operation, which is really probably not common, right? Right. So I combined my own knee replacement to Swift Path, the old joke. Not only am I the hair club president, but I'm also a customer. Right. <laughs> so how oh, was I not going to get my knee done by Swift Path? You know, come on. So it was, it was good. I'm doing quite well. Um, you know, I have to say, just so people know, as I say this to, to my patients, um, these are knees of man. They're not knees of God. Okay. And they're not the same. You know, how, you know, it's, um, it's difficult to stand for long periods of time. Okay. So after my first knee, I operated. And after I had my second knee done, I really couldn't stand long enough in the OR. So I decided to retire from the OR, but continued to be the chairman and develop programs for this huge program that services 1.4 million people. And that was a tough decision after 30 years in the OR. Um, but um, I, I just didn't want it. Someone said, well, maybe you can do one knee twice a month. I said, I am not going to be the old guy coming in what twice a month <laughs> you know, <laughs> to do the knee. You know, like, if I can't do my day, which I couldn't, I couldn't. I mean, and some people can, and I appreciate that. They have different results, right? Right. I, I've heard of some guys who have single knees. They can't operate afterwards. Some have bilateral knees and then revisions, and they can. But for me, after about a, a 45 minutes or an hour, very uncomfortable. You know what I mean? And you don't want your attention taken away from the operative field because your, your legs are aching, right? Sure. You know, and that. So I had to make a tough decision, but it also allowed me to focus more on building the program for the people of the South Bronx and for projects like the journal OEI and a whole bunch of new things. So uh, still young and vibrant and still doing it. I was in the OR the other day watching uh, some spine reps put together probably about 22, 23 trays to cover a spine case. And a lot of it, of course, was plan B, plan C, plan D. And, uh, you know, what do we do if the robot doesn't work or gives us some bad information and, and this and that? And I was just looking at the sheer complexity of it all. And then that just made me think about cars. You know, I used to be able to work on my own car, but now they're just so complex that, that having yep. to take it in for a specialist is is kind of the norm now. And then your article came out on LinkedIn this morning, and it really just brought it full circle for me. Um, and yep. I'd like to read just part of it, and then I want to I yeah, want to talk do. about it with you. Absolutely. Um, no reps. So you believe we don't need, or there will be a world without OR reps? My challenge: put up or shut up. Or show up, I'm sorry. Uh, get rid of all your OR reps now, then tell me how that goes. That's number one. Uh, number two, write yeah. to me a plan of exactly how you intend to go from a model serviced by high-level OR representatives to one without. And then lastly, show me a place that has no reps in any aspect of the OR. Uh, then write up how that institution did it and what it cost them to substitute for what they were doing. And I, and I guess my thought, and I, I really want to hear what you have to say, but was the, the complexity element of what's happened in orthopedics. I remember when I first started that sports medicine was a suture anchor, and foot and ankle was a mini frag and a small frag set. And now yep. just things have gotten so complex and, and a lot of options that are in the OR that I don't, I don't see how you do it without somebody specialized to, to manage these things. What, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I am a huge fan, believer, and proponent of reps and rep involvement in the OR. I was reacting to all the many predictions and quotes uh, on LinkedIn that some people were saying reps are dead, they're going away, 
it's an evolution, things will go away. And, and I'm saying, that's not happening. The OR is so complex. You know, just so you know, when I got to the hospital mat now, we broke down everything in the OR, and I did this with my rep, okay? So without just that, just planning the OR, I did it with my rep. We have huge needs for the rep. So I basically felt that with all this chatter about someone doing this, someone doing that, my answer was, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Show me. Tell me a plan of how you're going to remove a vital person who adds immeasurably to the outcome positively of the patient right now. Now, I'm not saying it can't be done, but you would have to substitute and train essentially a staff of people who do what a rep does, right? And it's doable. Don't get me wrong. But my answer was, show me what you're going to do. Show me the financial statement. Show me how much it's going to cost you, right? And then show me a place that does it without reps. And I'm talking about reps that never go into the hospital, okay? I don't, don't tell me about a rep who's sitting in materials management going between rooms but not going into the room. That's still having a rep, right? <laughs> right. So I'm not, I'm not buying that. Show me one who does it right. I want to see how they do it. I want to see what it costs them. And can it be can it be imitated? I met a guy a number of years ago from, from one of the big companies, and he came up with a quote, which, which was great. Uh, I will uh, reference it with Steve Shuey from Arthrex, who said, you can't clone Superman. So if some place like Hospital for X figured it out with a $12 billion endowment, is that reproducible for everybody else? Is that really reproducible? So I wanted in the journal to say, if there are nine places in the country, if there's a place in Little Rock, Arkansas, if there's a place in Fort Worth, Texas, that is doing it, we should know about it, shouldn't we? The world should know how they're doing it. And it may or may not make sense for you. Because I can tell you, when you're doing a tapered stem and the calcar cracks and you got to flip to a distal fixation stem that's modular, you need a team that knows how to do that. And right now, that team includes your rep. That's really good. You know that uh, this podcast reaches a lot of reps. Uh, if you were advising them in today's climate, you know what what made that rep really good for you all those years, uh, what would that be? I think, uh, you know, I was thinking about this before the podcast and I made a sort of a a little bit of a list for for you on this. You know, everyone likes this. You know, and what's top on the list is be a partner. Be a partner. You know, the surgeon has many, many facets, facets, to his or her life, okay? There's a uh, there's a surgeon behavioral pie that I copyrighted. It's going to go into one of the blog posts coming up. That there are six things that motivate every orthopedic surgeon. Six. They are doing the right thing, making money, covering themselves defensively, CYA, marketing their practice, plow, power and glory, and going home, right? Those are the six biggies. So you need to be a partner to the hospital, to the nurses, to the techs, and to the surgeon and what their desires and goals are. You become a partner, you'll have a seat in the room. And everyone knows you need to have a seat at the table. So what are the specific things on this list that I think reps could really be a partner in? First, OR productivity. Good reps know so much about flow moving the trays, moving, getting the room done, giving advice to the surgeon. Why? Because they go to eight other hospitals, nine other hospitals. Who's a better benchmarker for me than my rep? My rep is Carlos Pena, superb rep. I say, Carlos, we're doing it this way. You're at these other hospitals. What are they doing that I'm not doing that I could do better? 
what a great resource of benchmarking, right? That's true. Do you think my competitor hospital down the block is going to, when I call them up, hey, I want to come in and watch your cases so I can do better and outcompete you? <laughs> yeah, where does that conversation happen, right? Maybe, maybe in children's books, right? So, OR productivity, okay? Train management, of course, very important. That's true. Big staff training. How many times do people forget? Train the surgical tech, train the OR nurse, train the whole the companies, the vice companies have huge amounts of education, money, and training facilities. Right. Okay. The surgeons go for a course to learn how to use a widget. Send the techs, get them better. Or you don't have to send them there. The device rep can set up training sessions at the hospital OR on a Saturday. And just train them. You know, you get for every one hour training, you get 20 hours of productivity, right? So they need to get involved in staff training. They also know what's going on with their parent company. And sometimes the parent company have quite a lot of tools for surgeons, like marketing tools or information or a variety of consultants that could help you with a variety of things. Also, one of the biggest things which is often overlooked by reps is Reps should be able to connect the surgeon, their, their, their customer, to consultants in the company that could help them be better surgeons. Like if I'm working, if I am a rep for Zimmer, I know who the Zimmer consultants are around the country. Top surgeons, top thought leaders. And I have a guy who's in you know, Westchester County, New York, or Bronx, New York. And who is maybe could be a little better at decision making on the, you know, uh, insole bursting eight, whatever, whatever is the next implant. I'm just kidding around. You know what I'm saying? And uh, wow, imagine if that rep hooks me up with a top consultant who designed that product. And I can ask him questions about why do you choose this? Why do you choose what? Boy, that connectivity, that is another thing device device uh, reps can do. You know, they, they can bring the power and the leverage of the parent company in. Because otherwise, the parent company is just selling metal. But they're not. They're not supposed to just sell metal. Some do. Some do. They are selling the process of how to put that device in correctly for the best outcome for that patient. That's what they're selling. You are selling a process. You are not selling a product. That's really good. I had a surgeon tell me that recently, that this business is not metal and plastic anymore. And uh, I I thought that's profound because back when I started, it was, we were all just tripping over each other to to share the newest development and Crosslink Poly was better and, uh, this type of femoral component was better, and it was uh, the conversations were all about metal and plastic. But now uh, we're just hearing conversations about a lot of other things. Um, yeah. One of the things that I'm hearing a lot about is uh, is robotics. And if you want to, yeah. if you want to throw a grenade in the room on LinkedIn, then then talk about robotics, and sure, you, you'll get uh, eyes and nays. Oh, eyes and nays would be pleasant. Yes. (laughs) Uh, You'll probably get a finger poke in the eye is more like it. So so tell me, uh, do you have any thoughts on that right now? My personal feeling is very, very, very interesting. I I trained starting, you know, in the 80s. And I remember seeing an original IB-1, which if I remember correctly, had no real instrumentation. It had like something you took an X-ray at the uh, at the hip center with a radiolucent thing, and you you judged where the cuts would be. And of course, if you were John and Saul, especially, you had superb results. Then came as we, you know, Whitesides talked about it in his uh, podcast with you. The intramedullary rods that improved positioning, improved it, and the captured guides and. And then we had patient-specific cutting guides. And then we had 
navigation. The interesting thing is we have to go in with the idea that these are just better and more accurate ways to put in the implant. And, and if you're going to believe that putting an implant in more accurately and better will eventually lead to a better outcome, then it makes sense to make the transition to robotics. You don't have to prove better five-year results. You don't have to feel that. It may be 20-year results, maybe 35-year results. But I know that if you put a car together better, everything is better. And I'm not looking. You know, I've seen articles, which I don't really care for, that people who have robotic surgery had less pain afterwards. And I'm not really going there. I'm not seeing why that would happen. And, you know, one of them, one of the articles was the pain score for the robotic was one. Sorry. Out of 10, and the pain score for the non-robotic was 1.6 out of 10. I, I just don't think that's a significant or useful study. But I will say that it, it is a better way to implant. And we don't, this goes back to what I said, where you don't always need immediate gratification with an immediate outcome of length of stay and everything else. It's, it could be. You know, the other thing is people are not realizing that a lot of some surgeons, especially knee replacement, are better than others in balancing the knee. Um, I trained knee surgery with Bob Booth, who was a just a absolute master in balancing. If there was a robot, that robot would strive to be Bob Booth in the OR, would strive and not <laughs> that's get a, that's there. That's a good line. Uh, and I truly mean that with the deepest humility and respect for a great mentor of mine. But I will say that uh, a lot of surgeons don't have the skill of Bob Booth. And I believe that with, with robotics, you can get to that balancing and tune it in and dial it in to get 90% there. But if you didn't use it, you may be at 85 the patient may have a little bit of mid-flexion stability, not enough to revise, but that's not good. So why won't we use the best to balance the knee? And that may be the best argument, I think, for robotics. There is uh, something out there. I have not found the phrase. It was just something I read and quickly passed it by. But then I thought, the more I thought about it, it was profound, is that people that invest a lot or they think they have something that's pretty amazing, it, it does affect their expectations. And and they will defend it even sometimes if the car is breaking down all the time because they've got this investment in it. And I've wondered yes. when a patient is presented, you just got a robotic knee. This is the state of the art. This is the best thing in the world since sliced bread to, to place your implants in space. How does that affect what's going on between their ears? Oh, that's a great point. I haven't seen that. I'm not sure exactly how you study that, but I have to believe that that it has some effect. Oh, it has to. Um, I think when the the doctor shoppers come in looking for the robot or looking for the anterior approach or looking for the the Tommy John widget that just came out for for sports medicine, if there is such a thing, you know that expectation piece goes a long way as a placebo effect, I think, you know, I think you hit, you hit the nail on the head. You know, people have this expectation. Well, I went to this guy because he does this approach, then I need to do well. And then the surgeon, the way he looks at the patients is, of course, they're doing well because I'm using widget A. It can be a vicious cycle. Well, what a great conversation, Dr. Kirschenbaum. Thank you so much uh, for your contributions to our world, especially on the publishing side. Really a cool story there. Uh, I appreciate you sharing your story uh, with me and my audience and absolutely wish you continued success with this uh, exciting endeavor, Journal OEI. Great stuff. Thank you, Kevin. It's been great. And I love listening to your podcasts. It's my number one podcast to listen to, actually. No kidding aside. Uh, really enjoy the people you have on. And I want to thank you very much for uh, uh, um, 
offering this interview. Yeah. What a wonderful conversation. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Kirschenbaum, for gracing us with your presence and just letting us hear about your life. I was taking notes the whole time. I love that line about you're not selling product, you're selling process. Think about that one. Uh, one hour of training equals 20 hours of productivity. Just really good stuff throughout this thing. I'm going to listen to it a couple more times. So let's do a super quick review. The ability called persistence is what helps us wait out a marriage, and it also helps us on keeping a marriage intact and healthy and prosperous. Uh, persistence gets us to the altar, but persistence afterwards helps keep the rings on. Do a good job and good things will happen. That's uh, that's suitable for framing straight out of his mouth. Really good stuff. So thank you all. I really appreciate your time today. And as always, I really appreciate you being in the audience. And I hope this stuff helps. Uh, it's certainly helped me. So I hope you all have an awesome week. And as always... Be strong, be smart, be positive, be persistent, and most importantly, be safe. Device Nation.